Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you've been paying any attention to the news in recent weeks, you have likely heard the term court packing. Simply put, that's an idea that's being floated by some Democrats who'd like to expand the number of justices on the U.S. Supreme Court to more than nine. Sounds like a radical or controversial idea, but it's actually been discussed many times in American history, first back in the 1860s, and then there was another attempt in the 1930s. Here to tell us about the history and context of this argument is someone who knows a lot about the highest court in the land. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. And she joins us now. Dahlia, welcome back to Detroit Today. So let's start with this idea of court packing. <clears throat> that is a term that, as I said, has come up a couple times in the last couple of weeks as we are watching now Amy Coney Barrett uh, probably be confirmed to a seat on the high court after just four years after the Republicans denied Democrats the chance to do the same thing in the last year of President Obama's term. Is court packing a likely way that Democrats could respond to this I, this effort by Republicans, which I guess they could call a packing of, of, of its own? Um, yeah. In fact, I think uh, Joe Biden this week has started doing exactly the rhetorical trick you just did, which is saying, actually, the court packing is already underway. We have a president who is going to try to take five years' worth of judicial nominations uh, because they count the year that they see stolen from Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, and, you know, and, and, and this year as well. And so they're saying, you know, in his four-year term, he packed five years' worth of judges. So that's where the court packing is happening. And I think maybe a little bit um, of the problem is that that term of art, court packing, sort of sweeps in both too much and too little. So, you know, the term court packing, I think, is most famously associated with FDR, who was trying really, really hard to pass all this progressive legislation and being stymied at every turn by an extremely conservative Supreme Court. And so he initially floated this idea, I think, under the guise of, oh, you know, the justices have too much work to do, so we'll add a few more seats to the court. And um, as you know, that plan went down in flames. And in <laughs> fact, he was one of the most popular presidents in history who kind of imperiled his own presidency with the threat of adding seats. I think the coda to that story also useful for us today is that the court in and of itself changed directions. Yes. In other words, at least the threat of court packing was the thing that forced uh, the famous term is, you know, the switch in time that saved nine, where the judges began to uphold his legislation. And so the, the, the maybe useful part of the story is that he never actually packed the court, but the threat of packing the court uh, forced the court to modify its behavior. And mm -hmm. I think a little bit of the conversation we're having right now is less about structurally seating five, seven, nine more justices, a little bit more about sending up a flare to the court 
that a 6-3 court that strikes down all progressive legislation if Biden takes the presidency is going to be a problem. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think at least in in history— it's been the threat of that, as you point out, that's that's been more effective than, you know, actually going through with it, which we haven't we haven't seen any president actually try to change the makeup of the court uh, as a way of of getting what they what they need. They always talk about it. But 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 here's something I, I want to get you to address that's a little bit off of that specific idea Um so even if even if Joe Biden were to be elected in on January 22nd of 2021, he's he's sent over the the idea of you know adding four more justices because you'd have to add four if you were going to try to blunt this majority uh, to this to to, the, to to Congress and got it passed. Um, it it wouldn't solve what I think is the issue that that's come up, which is that. Uh, if Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed to the court, you will have a majority of justices on the court who were nominated by presidents who lost the popular vote and uh, and who gained the office uh, through the through the electoral college, which I think is itself a constitutional crisis of sorts in the sense that. Of course, the Electoral College was designed, I guess, in the most flattering terms uh, as a way of protecting minority political interests from tyrannical majorities. Uh, The makeup of the Senate uh, is also a mechanism that's supposed to check majoritarian uh, powers. But I don't know that anybody ever contemplated, as they were designing this system, that they would empower... Uh, through these provisions, tyrannical minorities. In other words, uh, the, the you know the, the the Republican minority that exists now with power over uh, more of government than the majority has, and packing the court with more justices doesn't address that issue. And I wonder if there is any discussion at all about maybe fixing some of those provisions, checking some of the power that uh, that minority political factions can gain. Yeah, I mean, I think you are pointing up. I, I, I essentially argued this yesterday in my own piece at Slate, just there are structural problems, and you've just identified if Judge Barrett is confirmed, then we will have seen five of the six conservatives on the court will have been seated by presidents who lost the electoral vote. And you're quite right. Not only is the electoral college structurally designed to preserve minority rule, but so too is the Senate, right? That's Mm -hmm. why, you know, Wyoming has two senators and California has two senators and that by definition suppresses majority rule. And so you have a sort of minority majority president ratifying uh, a decision ratified by a minority majority Senate Mm -hmm. and then placing people on a minority majority court. So all three branches are working in tandem to promote usually sort of patriarchal white rural interests and to dilute other interests. And that is 
as you point out, it was a feature, not a bug for the framers. They mm -hmm. wanted uh, to protect those interests. And you're exactly right that when all three of those entities are working in concert to promote minority rule, and I would add one more layer uh, before we talk about solutions, which is then you have the court itself doing what this court has been doing for the last several decades, which is chipping away mm -hmm. by blessing gerrymandering, by blessing vote suppression, right, by, by gutting the Voting Rights Act, by blessing voter ID laws. So then you have the court itself not just working in tandem with the other two branches, but actually eroding voting power and the very proposition of one person, one vote. Then you really do have, I think, minority rule or what you're describing as sort of tyrannical minorities. Now, there are fixes for the court itself, and, and one of the reasons I, I balked a little when you used the word court packing is that a lot of court reform groups talk in terms of quote-unquote structural court reform, mm -hmm. both because it's not loaded the way the FDR court packing plan is, but because there's a whole bunch of different ideas uh, some of them very academic, some of them pretty simple that would effectuate some of the things that you're worrying about. So, for instance, there's one thought out there about just doing away with lifetime tenure, right? The Constitution says Article Three judges serve for life. Mm -hmm. There's one uh, idea that has them just serving for 18 years so that each president presumably gets to make two selections. There's one idea that Professor Chris Brickman has written about recently that involves just stripping the court of jurisdiction to hear certain cases. So take away the court's authority to decide, say, voting rights cases that I just described, um, or take away the court's authority to decide, you know, uh, uh, abortion issues. So that is out there. Mm -hmm. And then there are other very complicated plans. There's one 555 plan where you get five liberal justices and five conservative justices, and they agree on five justices that are acceptable to both of them. And that sort of reallocates the balance away from minority rule. So there are a whole bunch of uh, proposals out there, each of which would, I think, recalibrate what you're worried about. But I think you're absolutely identifying what is currently, I think, the anxiety that weighs on me, which is if you think about the court, and I think the framers did, at its best as a kind of counter-majoritarian check to make mm -hmm. sure that tyrannical majorities don't oppress minorities. And if you think that at its best, that's what the court was doing in Brown v. Board, right? That's what the court was doing in Roe, in Obergefell, the marriage equality case. Even at its best when the court is doing that, it's acting to push back majority power. But right now we have a court that is acting to preserve the like very parochial interest of big business mm -hmm. and some religious minorities. And so even if it's a counter-majoritarian check, when it's working in the interest of either you know dark money donors, like we're seeing how much money the Koch brothers have poured into the composition of the bench, or if it's working in the interest of just very, very, very narrow minority religious interests, then you have a counter-majoritarian check that is actually serving a very, very privileged elite few. And that, I think, is the 
big structural problem we have right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. We're talking about the confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett, the court itself, and politics, how it might influence the shape and direction of the court in the near future. Uh, Dahlia, I want to talk now a little about Amy Coney Barrett herself and these extraordinary hearings that are that are taking place. I don't know that that even uh, even those who watch the court closely would have imagined that the things that have happened in just the last few weeks would come to pass. Uh, but but Amy Coney Barrett is a name that is very familiar to serious court watchers. Tell us a little about who she is and why why she is the pick for Donald Trump in this moment. Yeah, I mean, she is very young, first and foremost. She's only 48. Um, she has an incredibly distinguished and I think indisputable academic career. She uh, was a very much beloved professor at Notre Dame, and uh, she clerked for Antonin Scalia, who she sees as her kind of judicial spirit animal. And she's very bound up in Justice Scalia's judicial project of originalism or original public meaning, which means that she is really devoted to interpreting the Constitution the way the framers intended for it to be read. And already you can see that that would lead to some very, very small-c conservative outcomes. Um, She was elevated to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, the federal appellate court, three years ago. And um, she was on the shortlist for the Supreme Court. Donald Trump met with her around the time that he picked Brett Kavanaugh. I think he openly said he was going to save her as a woman to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat. And he asked her to take this job two days after Justice Ginsburg died. There was no other vetting. So she was clearly going to be slotted into this seat. And I think the other thing that I would say is that she is a very surprising nominee insofar as she has written really capaciously and expansively, Mm -hmm. both in academic writings and in speeches, and then even in her three years on the federal bench, about how she thinks about judging. So she's not a cipher. She's not one of those judges who, because she's had a short judicial career, we don't know how she thinks. She has written, for instance, really expansively um, in an article from 22 years ago that she co-wrote about what Catholic judges should do. She self-identifies as a deeply faithful Catholic, what they should do if they have to impose the death penalty, which goes against uh, Catholic law. She's written really expansively about stare decisis, that's the Latin word for precedent, Mm -hmm. and what judges should do if they think a case was wrongly decided. And then even when she was elevated to the bench, she has some very, very, very thoughtful, deep, deeply, deeply conservative, to be sure, uh, dissents that she's written, for instance, in a gun case where um, a felon uh, lost his right to 
uh, bear arms, and the felon laws largely say that you can't have a gun after you've committed a felony. And she wrote a 37-page dissent in, in a case you'll hear about, I think, a lot at the hearings, where she said, well, it wasn't a violent felony, and the framers never intended for nonviolent felons to lose their Second Amendment rights. So, uh, in other words, staking out ground much further, even than Justice Scalia would have gone, uh, on the claim that this is an originalist reading. So I, I guess my long answer <laughs> kind of winds up in a very short answer, which is that she's extremely, extremely conservative. She has a pretty marked history of voting you know, against immigrants' rights, against workers' rights, against prisoners' rights certainly against abortion rights in a pair of cases. Um, but I don't think anyone should for one second think that she's not a deeply thoughtful, rigorous, very, very, very uh, intellectually sound and sophisticated jurist who does time and time and time again very openly come to extremely conservative results. And I think that answers your question a little bit about why um, – Donald Trump appointed her. She's very much of the mold of those Federalist Society. That's the conservative legal group that places judge. She's very, very much of their mold. And just the last piece of it is Donald Trump says and has said time and again, he has appointed her because he wants a judge who will, quote, automatically uh, reverse Roe v. Wade when they come into office. He has said he wants a judge who will strike down the Affordable Care Act that's being heard at the court one week after the election. He wants he is affirming that she will for certain join the conservatives to strike it down. And maybe most urgently, he has said he needs her on the court because there's going to be an election challenge, and he wants conservative judges to help quote, count the ballots to make sure that he wins the election. So that's all his language, not mine. But I think that he says he needs a conservative judge on the court because at least in those three cases, they're going to give him the outcomes he demands. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the effect that Amy Coney Barrett might have on the court and the other justices and on outcomes if she is confirmed. Stay with us. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, Thanks for tuning in. My guest is Dahlia Lithwick. She is uh, a writer for Slate. Uh, she writes about the courts and the law, and she hosts the podcast Amicus. Uh, Dahlia, I want to talk about what will happen on the court if Amy Coney Barrett joins it. Uh, as you were saying before the break, uh, she's very much in the mold of the justice that she clerked for, Antonin Scalia, who's been uh, gone for the from the court now for for four years, uh, but uh, it is always somewhat difficult to I think predict exactly what what effect a new justice will have uh, on the court on the other eight justices uh, and what kind of outcomes you might expect from that justice's uh, presence. Uh, in in crude terms, uh, this gives conservatives a six three majority on the court, uh, but there's a lot of uh, landscape, I guess, uh, between the, the, the most conservative justices and uh, 
uh, the ones who are who are less conservative. Give us an idea of what you think are some likely uh, likely things to happen if uh, Amy Coney Barrett joins this court. I'm really glad that you laid it out the way you did, Stephen, because I think it's it's absolutely the nuanced reading of the conservative wing of this court. It is not the case that there are six hard and fast if she is elevated. Mm -hmm. Uh, Conservatives, as we saw, and I think you and I even spoke about at the end of this past term, John Roberts, more often than not this last term on some really big ticket cases, um, threw in his vote with the liberal wing on the court Mm -hmm. and has become, without a question, the de facto swing vote on, on the court. And we saw a whole bunch of cases where either he or significantly Neil Gorsuch, to a lesser degree, Brett Kavanaugh, formed a kind of center block at the Supreme Court. And so it's not as simple as a finally demarcated 6-3 court. Um, That said, I would be lying if I didn't assert that these six conservative justices are without a doubt, and there's empirical studies that have been done uh, among the most six most conservative justices in the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to give the impression that um, they are moderate centrists. They're very, very conservative. But I think it is absolutely factually true what you're describing, that there is one block that has been Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito that's quite far to the right. Um, and that, by the way, is the block that last week called for Obergefell, the marriage equality case, to be revisited. And then much more in play, uh, you have the Chief Justice and Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch and um, Amy Coney Barrett would join that court. And my guess is based on her record, she's probably closer to the Clarence Thomas Sam Alito mm-hmm. end of the spectrum. I don't think that her record, at least at the Seventh Circuit, where she served for three years, suggests that she's going to be toward the center with John Roberts. I think she will be much more at the extreme conservative wing. Just one note on her is that Clarence Thomas is the only sitting justice on the U.S. Supreme Court who has openly said, I don't believe in precedent. If a case was wrongly decided, uh, I would overturn it. Uh, Antonin Scalia once called himself, he said, I'm a faint-hearted originalist. I believe in precedent. Uh, And then compared himself to Clarence Thomas and said, you know, I'm not a nut. (laughs) Amy Coney Barrett has actually (laughs) taken the position, you know, nutty or not, that like Clarence Thomas, if a case is wrongly decided, she would overturn it. And she's written, as I said, pretty expansively about that. So I think I would locate her on, again, that probably far right wing of the court. And then just the question becomes, I know it's your operative question, you know, what does that mean for jurisprudence going forward? And I think if you are somebody who has looked to the court for robust protection of, say, workers' rights or environmental rights or voting rights or LGBTQ rights or women's reproductive freedom or, you know, just generally the um, uh, uh, federal agencies having robust protection, so the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, uh, the EPA, the CDC. I think that there is probably five and maybe six votes to start to dismantle um, some of that progressive protections. And whether it comes in the form of, quote, unquote, overturning Roe, which is 
how it's being framed this week or overturning the Affordable Care Act, which is how it's being framed this week, or, or what I think is more likely, which is just a sort of slow, inexorable dismantling of the administrative state, a slow, inexorable uh, dismantling of climate protections, uh, protections for workers and for unions. And uh, I think that's going to start to fall away, uh, whether it means Roe v. Wade is explicitly overturned or just whittled away. I think that's coming. Uh, and the same, I would say, for LGBTQ rights. And then a really, really robust uh, protection of religious freedom um, in the ways that we've seen in the last few years where uh, religious dissenters can opt out of the sort of civil rights regime that we have now, whether it's the cake bakers or, um, you know, uh, uh, schools that religious schools that don't want to follow civil rights laws. Mm -hmm. I think all that is coming. And if you're somebody who's kind of come of age in the era when the Warren court stood firmly on the side of all those worker rights and women's rights and minority rights and voting rights. I think that era probably we can say pretty definitively is about to judder to a halt. Yeah. So, so I also want to get you to talk about Something that I think Chief Justice John Roberts thinks a lot about and worries, perhaps, uh, a, a good bit about. And that's the court's credibility going forward. Uh, you, you have a majority of Americans who say that these hearings to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg shouldn't even be taking place right now, that they should be waiting until after the election, uh, which suggests that uh, a good number of Americans may see this as an illegitimate appointment and, and see through what the Republicans say is just them playing by the rules uh, and, and interpret this as taking advantage uh, of the rules, which then casts some doubt, perhaps, on the authority that the court will have if Amy Coney Barrett is uh, is one of the nine justices. What what would we what would we see from Chief Justice Roberts that might indicate his worry about that or his attempt to shore up or solidify uh, this credibility that the court has because of uh, because of its history and its place uh, in in American society. I mean, I think you've nailed the number one concern that John Roberts has. And I think, you know, when I said earlier, John Roberts voted with the liberal bloc in a bunch of key cases this term, it, it's clear to me that that was not done because he suddenly became liberal. I think it was because he was deeply worried about the public legitimacy of the court. And, you know, I say this all the time, I'll say it again, you know, by design, the court was supposed to be the weakest branch. It has no power of the purse, no power of the sword. According to the Federalist Papers, all it has is the public's belief that it transcends pure partisanship and that more often than not, it comes to the correct result. And so it's not a, it's not a fanciful worry for the chief justice. Uh, when Donald Trump started attacking federal judges by name, right, and saying that they were not real judges or that they were bad judges or Obama judges, John Roberts, who never, ever leaps into the fray, leapt into the fray to defend 
uh, the independent judiciary mm-hmm. because, uh, as you and I agree, that's the only authority that ju- the judiciary has. And if the American people just said, eh, I don't believe in the court anymore, there would be nothing the court could do. They don't have an army. Mm-hmm. Um, and so John Roberts, I think, is deeply worried about that. And I think one of the reasons that the Barrett nomination is so fraught for him is both because it's clear that the Republicans invented a rule in 2016 to keep Merrick Garland from having a hearing, and now they've invented a new rule in 2020 to you know, force uh, Amy Coney Barrett to have a very, very compressed hearing where not all of her papers and speeches were disclosed. Um, they're having it in a pandemic. Two of the members of the Judiciary Committee have already tested positive. They're sitting in a closed room, some of them speaking without masks. Mm-hmm. So the are, are pretty terrible. And over and above all that, we have the president, as I said at the beginning, has now pledged that Judge Barrett is going to overturn Roe. She's going to strike down the Affordable Care Act. She's going to put a thumb on the scale to count votes in favor of him so he wins the presidency. So he's lashed her and the court to all of these political outcomes, which really further um, diminishes the esteem or the idea of an independent court. So I I think in the very near term, you'll probably see John Roberts do more of what he did Hmm. this past two terms, which is try to find a center place at the court, vote with the liberals on occasion, find minimalist ways to sort of split the baby to give the impression that the court is not this 6-3 6-3 behemoth that will always vote uh, for conservative outcomes. So I think you'll see him continue to modulate his behavior and his voting pattern. But I also think in a weird sense, the fact that it will not be a 5-4 court, that it will be a 6-3 court, mm-hmm. will actually give him cover to tack back to the right. In the long term, I think that what he didn't want was a bunch of 5-4 conservative liberal uh, outcomes. There's no chance of that now, and I think he does not want to be in the minority on a whole bunch of cases. So I think in the long term, as long as this is the current court, I actually think you may see him move back to the right and see a, a bunch of 6-3 outcomes so that he can write the majority opinions or assign the majority opinions and not – kind of go down in history as somebody who was on the dissenting side with the yeah. liberals. Yeah. Okay. Dahlia Lithwick uh, of Slate, uh, always, always great to have you with us. Uh, your knowledge of the court, of course, is uh, unparalleled in uh, journalism, in my opinion. So uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about how feminists should view the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. I'm going to talk with Washington Post reporter Monica Hess, who says being a respected, accomplished woman doesn't make Barrett a feminist icon. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But what should it mean for feminists? Coney Barrett is, by all accounts, an accomplished and respected jurist and a strong woman. 
But her views on issues such as reproductive rights and gender equality are raising serious questions about what her role on the court would mean for American women. Some critics worry that the groundbreaking work that late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg did to combat sex discrimination in the United States could be undone by another woman. In a column in the Washington Post, Monica Hesse says Amy Coney Barrett is a strong and admirable woman, but that does not make her a feminist icon. Monica Hesse, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, thank you for having me. So let's start here. Uh, Talk about the Republican talking points we're seeing now that are trying to cast Democrats as hypocrites for not embracing Amy Coney Barrett because she's a woman. I think you saw a lot of that at the hearings, and even even before leading up to the nomination, coming from Republican, both both men and women. And the talking point was feminists say that they want gender equality. They say that they want to support women doing well. Here is a woman being supported to the highest court of the land. What's your problem? Or why aren't you supporting her? It, it seems that this should be exactly what you want. And, and I think that it's just a little bit more nuanced than that. And when we talk about this issue, I mean, I, I'm reminded of similar kinds of dynamics around race, for instance. And if we go back to the time when Justice Thomas uh, was nominated to replace Thurgood Marshall, we had a similar argument about uh, the Republicans saying, hey, look, you said you you wanted to make sure that that Justice Marshall was replaced by an African-American. Here's here's an African-American who is qualified for the seat. Uh, you, you should be you should be happy. It seems that this is kind of the same narrative playing out around uh, around gender. But but give us some idea of why Amy Coney Barrett is, uh, in, in your estimation, um, not quite what most American women might take solace in, in when they think of uh, a replacement for Justice Ginsburg or just another woman on the court. I think that the question is not who is Amy Coney Barrett as a person, and it's not even what does Amy Coney Barrett believe in her personal life, what issues does she support in her personal life, but, but I think that women, uh, especially liberal women, especially feminists, are looking for a woman on the court that they feel will support their rights to live their own lives as they want, regardless of, if, regardless of whether that matches up with how Amy Coney Barrett would live her life. And I think that we, um, we see this coming to play a lot with her position on abortion, a lot with concerns over whether she would overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, it's, of course, perfectly fine for her to be pre- pro-life in her, uh, for her to be anti-abortion in her own life, for her to never choose abortion for herself. Um, the concern for women is, but would she choose it for me? Would she require me to live my life by, by, the same, um, by the same markers that she's chosen to live hers. And I think that that's where the concern lives. Not, not what she thinks as a woman, not how she behaves as a woman, but how does she expect other women to behave? How does she expect them to live their own lives? And, and some, of, some of what I hear from uh, conservatives and conservative women right now 
uh, is that somehow this reflects this point of view that you're you're standing reflects an intolerance for the idea of feminism that 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 in order to be considered a feminist you have to hold certain views on certain issues and that that sort of exposes the movement as being about politics uh, rather than equality in other words that the idea that a woman can uh, succeed and advance and not hold uh, the same views as maybe even a majority uh, of women is somehow not as uh, not as desired or not as respected uh, as as women who who do agree with sort of the mainstream or, or or the majority. How do you how do you answer that? Yeah, I think that that is the the position that's being put forth. But again, this is not about the views that you hold. This is about sitting on the highest court of the land and having your own opinions, lowercase o, become official judicial opinions that impose that viewpoint on, on the rest of the land. So um, a lot was made in the hearings of how many children Amy Coney Barrett has mm -hmm. and how admirable it is that she's, she's a strong working mom. And, and it is admirable, but there is nothing in, in a feminist perspective or feminist scholarship that would prevent Amy Coney Barrett from from choosing that life path. There, there's nothing feminist that would say you're not allowed to have seven kids and be a great mom and work. Um, but there are aspects of a conservative viewpoint espoused by Amy Coney Barrett that would prevent other women from living from living their lives as they choose. So, so there's a difference between saying um, we think all women should be able to live as they want and have the opinions that they want and in saying we need to put women with oppressive opinions on the highest court in the land. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg earlier, mm -hmm. and she was a, a beloved hero to many feminists because of the work she did in opening doors for other women. And I think that the fear... That, that liberal women or that feminists have is that Amy Coney Barrett would use Ruth Bader Ginsburg's judgments to be able to walk through that door and then shut it behind her and, and limit opportunities for the women who came behind her. And I think that, that that's what the fear really is. Hmm. Uh, I'm talking with Monica Hesse. She is a Washington Post columnist, wrote a piece recently titled, Amy Coney Barrett is a strong woman that doesn't make her a feminist icon. Uh, I, I want to also talk about religion here because it's another issue that has been raised in in the Barrett hearings. Uh, Republicans, uh, without much evidence of Democrats actually doing this, have come out and said, "Well, the criticism of of the nominee is in part because." Her views are rooted in her Catholicism. This is a line that we've heard uh, sometimes in the past uh, about Democratic criticism of conservative nominees. Here, though, I think uh, there, there is a particular dynamic that they're assigning uh, because of her gender here. In other words, that uh, they, they believe uh, or, or or they're trying to characterize democratic criticism again as being constrained by a certain view of what's acceptable 
for women um, and in terms of their their points of view and their their uh, their approach to 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 the to the law and to the work of the court. Um, there, this idea that that somehow it's it's a it's a criticism of a certain religious custom or practice or the religious differences that exist uh, in in certain parts of Catholicism. Uh, you, you talk some about that in your piece. Yeah, I think that I think that the question of of religion is a bit of a is a bit of a red herring and is is a bit. Um, is is a is a bit off point in this. Um, there have been a lot of charges of anti-Catholic bias. Um, obviously, five of the current Supreme Court justices are Catholic, um, as is Joe Biden, the Democratic candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that Republicans might be bringing her religion into this um, in, in a way that feels a bit bad faith to me. To to pardon the religious pun. Um, when I think that what what the concerns are are related to her her positions in the judicial court, they're they're not related to um, they're not related to what faith she practices. They're not related to even if she practices um, a, a fairly specific and conservative vision of faith at home. I, I think that none of those things are ultimately relevant to the issues that we're talking about, which are specifically how she would interpret the Constitution for women in the United States. Mm. How significant is that we're seeing Amy Coney Barrett um, nominated to replace uh, Justice Ginsburg? You talked a little about this uh, before, but the the idea of succession on the court is a a big deal in, in terms of its customs and its traditions. Uh, here you are going from one extreme to uh, almost the opposite. It doesn't happen very often. Uh, certainly, it did happen when Justice Thomas replaced uh, Justice Justice Marshall. But talk specifically about how, in feminist terms, replacing someone like Ginsburg with someone like Barrett has real real resonance. So Lindsey Graham said something earlier this week, which, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was it was something like, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a strong woman. We are replacing her with another strong, accomplished woman. Feminists should be feminists should be happy, or what? You know, we this this is this this is non remarkable. And I think that what is frustrating about that viewpoint is that it reveals a perspective that a woman is a woman. You had a woman, we're giving you another woman. The woman balance is remaining the same. Therefore, you should have no issues with this. When in fact, women have opinions and viewpoints that are as vast and diverse as men have. And I don't think that we would say, well, you wanted a man, here's another man, the balance is the same go forth and adjudicate. So so what is what is frustrating to many feminists is the idea that because another woman has arrived on the court it's the same. Women are not the same. Women have diverse viewpoints, women have diverse life experiences, and and women have diverse goals and visions for what they view in America. And saying that Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
who was a liberal feminist icon who worked on integrating military academies, who worked on um, keeping abortion safe and legal in the United States, who worked on gender equality for men as well as women, who was a staunch supporter of men being able to live different kinds of lives too, to say that we are replacing her with another woman really is just disappointing because it reveals a lack of appreciation for women as individuals, and it instead treats them as as little slots to be filled, hmm. um, or little 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 boxes to be checked off on on the court. So, so I think that um, when it comes down to it, the fact that Amy Coney Barrett is replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg in specificity is particular, particularly frustrating. Because what it's saying is the fact that she's a woman matters more than what's in her brain. And we are interested in her mind. We are not interested in her chromosomes. Yeah. You know, it's tricky, I think, to, to, to make that point and, and land it with a lot of people because what you're talking about is – uh, is tokenism, right? Uh, this idea that, that you just go grab somebody who meets a certain demographic and plug them into a spot and say, well, that's our, that's our effort at diversity. But, but that's a hard word to affix to someone who's really accomplished, uh, somebody who uh, has themselves broken uh, certain barriers. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett is not just... Uh, a woman that they, you know, went and grabbed and, and plugged into this into this role. She's somebody who is super qualified for it and super accomplished. Uh, it, it's really hard, she, I think, she, to make that that point about her. She is immensely accomplished, and I think that if she were replacing, if she had replaced Justice Scalia on the court, mm-hmm. I don't think that you would be having the same. Um, the, the same backlash or the same questions, because in many ways she's she's a natural successor to Justice Scalia. I don't think that if she if another justice retired, if Justice Alito retired and, and she was replacing Justice Alito, we would be having the, the same kind of discussions. Um, but I think that that it does feel like there is a a particular wound to the fact that she is replacing Justice Ginsburg and that the conservative response to it is to sort of shrug and 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 feign lack of understanding. I think that that when the response is you wanted a woman, you got a woman, it is offensive both to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and offensive to Amy Coney Barrett in in recognizing their own unique positions, talents, and gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also wonder what you think American women will make of Amy Coney Barrett as uh, as a justice uh, on the court and whether over time, you know, her presence might might change, change people's minds. Um, uh, this is the second woman, the only set, only the second woman uh, in U.S. history to be nominated to the court by uh, the Republican Party, uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, of course, is seen, uh, even though she was quite conservative, uh, uh, is seen in many circles as uh, 
her own kind of uh, feminist uh, feminist hero. Is there is there sort of the birth and opportunity for Amy Coney Barrett uh, to win over American women? It's possible. You mentioned Justice O'Connor, and and she was um, she was largely expected to be pro-life, and mm-hmm. then she she ended up being more moderate than many people thought she mm-hmm. would be, and and um, issuing surprising rulings or or, or siding um, siding with liberal justices sometimes and conservatives sometimes, and 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 really did become an icon. I think that um, it is it is very hard in this current time that we're in when when judicial appointments and um and confirmations before the senate have become so veiled that um it's that that judges rarely say what they think on specific issues they they and for very rational reasons only are willing to say they will have to examine the case before them so um so there. So for as thorough as review processes are, we we often are surprised by by how justices end up behaving on the bench. Um, but until she's on the bench, what we have to look back over are her previous writings, her previous statements, and and those those at least have not been reassuring. Yeah, yeah. You know, the other thing I always uh, I always mention is that the court is such a unique place it is such an isolating place and the work there uh, is so consuming that everyone who joins the court i think uh, ends up being at least somewhat different than what uh, you expect i think the the, the court has an effect on uh, its members also the longevity that people uh, experience on the court uh, is a real is a real influence uh, the, the the time that justices are there often um, ends up uh, ends up moving them. Um, I, I wonder what you make of Amy Coney Barrett, who's forty eight, uh, and and if she's confirmed, could serve for a really long time. Uh, th- th- that possibility of of I don't want to say growth because that's somewhat condescending, but 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 change that the that. that coming to see things differently because of the work of the court and, of course, because of the stakes, uh, which become, I think, much more evident uh, once you're there. Uh, this, could be, this could be someone who could be quite different in, in, in some time. Yeah, I mean, I, as you mentioned, Amy Coney Barrett is 48, so she, um, she, she has a long life and a long career ahead of her. I don't think that anybody ends up on the Supreme Court who is not a deeply serious person who who has a call to service or a call to patriotism in in some way. And and one would hope that being on the court would transform at least some of your beliefs or or some of your understanding of the law just because there are no higher stakes. You you hold the futures of um 300 million Americans in your life every day. And I think that it would be impossible to be in that position and not approach it with a, a deep level of solemnity and seriousness. Okay. Monica Hesse, Washington Post columnist. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. 
Okay, and that's going to do it for us today. We will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. Talk again tomorrow.